The attempt to describe the love of Christ would certainly occupy all the time that we had. Uh, We would not be able today to be able in the time that we've allotted here to completely explain, uh, completely demonstrate the love of Christ. But one of the great statements that reminds us of His love in our text this morning is not a phrase that we would often associate with His love, but it certainly does remind us of what His love and what the result is. I want you to look with me at Hebrews 7, verse 25 this morning. Primarily, we're going to deal with this one verse, Hebrews 7, 25, as part of our exposition, of course, through the book of Hebrews. But I want you to notice in verse 25 of Hebrews 7, it says this, Wherefore, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. I love the expression, He is able. He is able to do what? He is able to save to the uttermost. Why he's able to save to the uttermost is because he continues forever, as we've learned about his unchangeable, everlasting priesthood. He has not only been able in the past, but he is able in the present, and he's able in the future. His ability is not bounded or kept in or penned in by human wisdom, human strength, or by human wisdom. His ability is based upon his unchangeable character and upon what the context of Hebrews 7 has been, his unchangeable priesthood. Remember, this unchangeable priesthood also means it is a non-transferable priesthood, which means uh, there will never be another with the ability that he has. There will never be another who can claim what he claims. Now, the writer of Hebrews is making a very bold statement. He is able. He's not suggesting that it might be possible. He's not suggesting that it's possible in certain situations. He's not saying it's possible if man meets certain conditions. He's saying he is able to what? To save them to the uttermost. Now, if we stop there, it would suggest that any and all are going to be saved. But no, there's a following expression. That come unto God by Him. This is not a general universal salvation that he's proclaiming, but he's saying he's able to save to the uttermost. This is for all of you. No, he says that come unto God by Him. Now this does not mean God's ability is limited by what man does. That's oftentimes the false approach, that God is only able as man is willing to do. God is able if man does this, this, and this. But it is important to understand that it is only those that come unto God. Now because God, Jesus Christ specifically here, continues forever, has this unchangeable priesthood, this is to be understood not as some kind of a temporal salvation or something that just merely results in providential favors, Uh, but it refers to the eternal and spiritual salvation, which is what the writer of Hebrews has in mind here. This includes a deliverance from the presence of sin, from the presence of evil, not only here, but in that which is to come. 
it also is deliverance to the enjoyment of all that God is. And ultimately, it is promised by the ability of God all that come unto Him. I want you to turn over briefly to the book of Ephesians before we continue with this exposition here. And I want you to look at Paul's words. Uh, This is not new for many of you. Um, As we say oftentimes, um, if you came today to learn something brand new that you've never heard before and that I'm going to be filled with some kind of a knowledge and I'm going to pour knowledge upon you, that's not what my intent is nor my calling. It is simply to point us to the reality of what God's already told us. And one of the great expressions of the ability of God is demonstrated through the Apostle Paul's words to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, I want you to notice this was Paul's great desire. He says, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in him, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. One of the great truths is that why we do what we do, why we worship the way we worship, is for the glory of Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ, not our glory, not man's glory, but the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul's great desire is that they would understand and be able to comprehend just how wide, just how deep, the length, the width, all the measurements that we can possibly think of, that we would comprehend the love of Christ towards those that have come unto him. Now, we know that Paul was writing to a particular group of people at Ephesus. The writer of Hebrews was writing to a particular group. But also, he was, they were both writing about the realities that all these things come in and through Jesus Christ only. And his ability to save. And his ability to deliver. His ability to not only deliver, but what the writer of Hebrews says, to save to the uttermost. The uttermost. The word uttermost means completely. It means fully. It means it leaves nothing void. I'm afraid that we have some that believe that Christ fills us mostly the way up with His ability and what He does, and then we're left to fill up the remaining portion. Salvation to the uttermost means exactly what it is. He's able to save to the uttermost fully, completely, eternally, without any places being left. Those that come unto God by Him. Christ was called to this work. Christ was called to this work by the Father. He was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father to effect 
this salvation to the uttermost. Jesus Christ has accomplished this. He's accomplished salvation. He's not made salvation possible. He has accomplished salvation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And by this accomplishment, all those that have come unto God by Him are saved to the uttermost. Now, I know we have a temptation in our day and age to try to screen. And when I talk about screening, I'm not talking about not asking questions. But we have this human mentality about us that sometimes has a hard time understanding how is it possible that God does not need any of my ability in order to save me? How is it possible that this God doesn't see something in me that adds value to him? And yet, folks, that's the exact truth of Scripture. We were not saved to add value to the Godhead. We're not saved to add value to Christ. The reason of our redemption is not because we were so valuable to Him. We were saved because it is unto His glory, wherein no man may boast about this. That leaves none of us being able to say, yes, I've been saved by the uttermost because God looked upon me and saw my value. No, some way he takes a depraved sinner and he makes that sinner to the glory of Christ, which that is one of the great mysteries. Because we all should be aware somewhat of our depravity this morning. You should be aware of the fact that you are still a sinner. And you can be a pretty vile one at that, and so can I. And yet, Paul, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, wanted them to be able to comprehend the depth and the width, the length, the breadth of this love of Christ. Now notice that Christ coming into this world came to save sinners. No question about that. To do this work required the ability to do it. Therein lies man's biggest problem. I do not have the ability to save sinners. I don't have the ability to make an atonement for my own sin. I don't have the ability to give God enough of my goodness to say, you now have the ability to save. Now remember the context. The Levitical priesthood compared to the priesthood of Melchizedek, remember the Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to the old ways, to the old manner of which they believed atonement came. And he reminds them and he says, no, no, no. Christ is more like Melchizedek, not the priesthood of the Levites. Melchizedek didn't have a beginning, didn't have an ending. Much similar in in type, like what Christ would be. But what ability must Christ have in order to save? This is key. The Savior must have the ability to fulfill the law perfectly. Therein lies our problem. You can't fulfill the law perfectly yourself. But Christ did and continues to do. The law is the very thing which we cannot do, and yet it is the ability that Christ has. Christ not only fulfilled the law, but by His obedience and fulfillment of the law, He satisfied the demands of a holy God. When we talk about atonement, we are talking about sin actually being removed for. We're talking about sin actually being atoned for. We're talking about death being crushed. We're talking about the atonement 
It was a work that there's not, there's no creature, there's no angel, there's no man, there's no woman who has the ability to undertake and perform. Nobody could do that. Sadly, we gauge society often by what their ability is. But I think it's so profound and so beautiful that God has clearly said, here's something that no man has the ability to do. You cannot atone for your own sin. Nor can another human being atone for your sin. In other words, it would be a waste for you to go and confess your sin to another man thinking that that man can somehow offer any sort of an atonement for your sin or that he could grant you forgiveness. Because he he can't. Now, he can claim ability. I can claim ability. doesn't mean that I have the ability. There are false prophets all over this world who claim they have the ability to heal. They have the ability to do this. They have the ability to do that. Claiming ability doesn't make it so. But Christ actually is able. He is able to atone. Because man cannot save himself, nor can any other creature work on behalf of Christ, no one can work out salvation for them. But Christ is able. As it appears from Scripture, Christ sent by the Father, Christ undertakes the work. He's referred to as being mighty to save and has all the ability completely and fully to effect what's necessary. What was necessary? The law had to be fulfilled. Sin had to be paid for. And God the Father had to be satisfied. He is able to save to the uttermost. To the utmost perfection. There is nothing wanting in Christ's salvation. There's nothing lacking. A man may have an ability to do something, but he'll have, pardon the expression, a chink in that armor. He'll have a weakness in his ability. He'll have something that he just can't do. It's a very crude illustration, but you take a world-class athlete and you look at that athlete and they may be the top of their sport. And you might say, that is the greatest athlete. They have such great ability to play that sport. This has always fascinated me. You take them out of their sport and put them in another sport and they look completely uncoordinated. They have no ability. They might be an athlete, but they do not have the ability across the board. Again, crude illustration. But Christ's ability is to the fullness, the complete perfection, so that it leaves no reason for man's ability to be needed. It's a shot to our ego to not be needed. Some people are offended that God doesn't need them. We shouldn't be offended. We should just return praise that I offer you nothing, God, and yet you in your goodness and in your love and in your mercy have saved me, and I'm, off, I'm giving you nothing, really, that you need. People often say, well, He needs me to preach the Gospel. He needs me to proclaim. No, we're privileged to do that. People say, if you believe in the doctrine of election, then why do you preach the Gospel? The main reason is because we're commanded to preach the Gospel. That's why... 
Can I preach the gospel without fully understanding all the mysteries of God? I absolutely can. I can proclaim, repent, and believe. But when I proclaim, repent, and believe the gospel, I am preaching a Christ that I believe is actually able to save and do that, or I'm preaching false doctrine and I'm preaching lies. If I put out there, repent and believe, and you might, Christ might see fit to save you, he might see fit. He has the ability for everybody except this line of sinner here. This sinner is just too far gone. You preach that same gospel message into whatever the worst prison you can think of, and you preach that in the cell blocks, and you preach that amongst the men or the women or whatever it is, and if that soul repents and believes the gospel, that person is just as saved as every single one of you sitting here who is. And when we start limiting God, saying that person's done too many things, that person is too far gone, what are you going to do with people like the Apostle Paul who murdered He's a trophy of God's grace. And yet, he's able to save not only in this perfection, but he's able to save forever. To the utmost of time. To eternity. Folks, we cannot fully comprehend and grasp what eternity actually means. We are time-driven people. Everything we do is driven by time. When you get up, when you go to bed, where you have to be. Everybody today has somewhere they need to be or will need to be. You're driven by the time. We don't comprehend eternity. Yet we are saved to the utmost, to the uttermost, throughout all of eternity. Not only to eternity, but we are saved to the very uttermost of what man really wants. We read in Ecclesiastes as Solomon was penning the book of Ecclesiastes, this search for something, this desire, and everything he looked for, all he found was vanity. All he found was emptiness. He says, I'm the wisest man, and I'm the wisest man who's ever lived. And he said, I searched high and low and wide, and I could not find it. Man's greatest need is he needs, the, he needs a Savior. He needs he who is able to effect that salvation to come unto him. Now, it's the coming unto God by him is the part where there becomes some dispute. That's where people begin to say, well, there's complete free will. That's when man has to make that choice. It's where we get the idea, God's done his part to save you, and now you do the remaining part. As A.W. Pink once said, he said it's, it would be a, a shame, and I'm paraphrasing this, to say that God is doing everything he possibly can to save sinners, but they just won't respond. He's accomplishing it. The Bible says, all that come unto him, I will in no wise cast out. That's why when we preach these doctrines and we say, come unto Jesus Christ, we're not doing that looking at people and saying, but that excludes you and excludes you and excludes you. God is sovereign, man is responsible. The gospel is not an invitation, it's a command. Come unto me. And yet, it is their very people who come unto God by him. Christ is able. Some people have said, well, I just can't believe in a God who doesn't have the ability to save the whole world. Is it really a question of ability? 
Some would have you believe it is. Does God, is universal salvation not the way of God because God's not able to save? Or is it quite possible that in his providence and in his sovereignty, his purposes were never to save the entire world? If its purposes were to save the entire world, wouldn't he do that? If not, then you have to say he lacks the ability. He is able to save those that come unto God by him. His absolute power, his absolute power does not negate his ability. The power of God's will being put into action. Now that ability being put into action reaches out, but there's nowhere in Scripture that says all men will be saved. This morning early, I was just glancing at a new commentary that came across one of the sites that I use. And I thought, this is interesting. And this man's uh, claim was that he was... He was reformed, and I think he was a reformed Presbyterian, which, you know, it starts to say, okay, he's, I, can, I can deal with most everything he's going to say. But then the people who uploaded this put a warning. And the warning was, this man believes in universal salvation. So he, he claimed the doctrines of grace, and he claimed this, but then he said, but I believe ultimately at the end of it all, everybody's going to be saved. Yet you can't find a scriptural basis for that. So it's not about God's ability that all men are not saved. Now why is there a reference made to those who do come to God by Him? Why do we see terms like His sheep? Why do we see terms like elect? Why do we see ter terms like His children or His people? All of those who've come to God through Christ are considered not on the basis of their person, but on the basis of the person of Christ. So in other words, those that came unto God by Him were coming not as their own individual, they were coming in the person of Christ. They come to God as being seated on a throne of grace, a throne of mercy. They come to God through Christ as God being their Father. This act of coming to God is the result or the fruit of the everlasting love of Christ. Why a person comes to Christ, why a person even considers going to God or coming to God is because of the love of Christ. Which is a direct effect of the death of Christ. And it is peculiar to those who are regenerate, those who've been converted. It implies that those who come to God come with a sense of need. But not only do they come with a sense of need, but they also come with the reality of the ability to save. You see, we not only have to recognize our need, but we have to recognize Christ's ability. But then there's a third part of this. We have to have on the basis of the person providing 
the salvation, we have to have a willingness to help us. If we had a Savior who had the ability, who had the, we could have a sense of need, but if we could be turned away because He's unwilling to help us, what kind of Savior would we have? How tragic would it be to know my need, know there was an ability on behalf of the giver, but then when I got there, the giver said, I'm unwilling to save you. Folks, that is the worst possible scenario. Of anything that can happen to you, of any experience, any affliction, any trouble, any trial, the worst thing that could happen to you was that you came to God in a sense of need, knowing he has the ability, and then God says, no! That's the worst news you could ever get. But guess what? The Bible promises that all that come unto him will not be cast out. All that come to God by him, through Christ. So not only... Is there that need? There's the ability. There's the willingness to save to the uttermost. Ability is quite a concept to consider. Man had access to God in what we call the state of innocence. The state of innocence goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But as a result of man's disobedience, as a result of Adam's sin, Man was unable to approach God without there being an access, a way, a middle person, a mediator, if you will. We've heard that term repeatedly over the last few weeks. Christ is that mediator. Christ is that priest. Christ is the one who has made peace. He's atoned for sin. He satisfied the justice of God. He's brought in this everlasting righteousness and he introduces his people into the presence of God. It is only through, the, through Jesus Christ that we are acceptable to God. That's it. The Apostle Paul, as he was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I love the interactions between the Apostle Paul and Timothy because I see so much the reality of Paul's desire and I understand under, this, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's being penned, but don't lose sight of the reality that when these authors of Scripture were writing, they're, uh, they're also, their personality, their individuality is coming out. They're not violating what God is saying, of course. But in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, Paul writes these words. He says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee, by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our, Lord, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Even Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, wrote about the ability to keep that which he gave. He saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. That gets me every time. How can a sinner like me be saved according to his purpose and grace? Folks, if you ever get over that, if you ever move beyond the glory of that, you're in deep trouble thinking-wise. Because it, it is coming to the understanding that to have the ability is one thing, but to be willing to save a sinner like me with everything he knows about me, knows the sin I'm going to commit today, knows the sinful thoughts I've had this morning, knows that I am not going to be a picture of perfect Christianity, yet he saved me to the uttermost. Man forfeited his access to God almost immediately. He was put in a perfect environment, yet what did man do? Man did what he is. He sinned. But then back in our text in Hebrews 7, he goes on and he says, not only does he have this ability, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ ever lives as God. He is the living God, though he died as a man. Christ rose from the dead and will not die again, but lives forevermore. He's not only a mediator, he is our redeemer, but he's also a priest. One part of the office of priest was what? One part of or branch of that office of priest was to intercede. Intercession is an interesting doctrine, it's an interesting phrase, because some of us grew up in the idea, and I don't believe this is scriptural, and we can, you can disagree with this, I don't believe it's scripturally that God is continually being hounded by Jesus Christ to convince God to let us stay. That God, that Jesus Christ is right now arguing with God the Father saying, listen, I know you're getting really weary with those people. And I, I, I grant you this. They are really, really trying my patience as well. But... Father, if you could see fit to just give them one more chance and that there's some kind of an argument where Christ is constantly convincing the Father, please just let them stay. You realize what's pleading for you as intercession is Christ's presence. His very presence before the Father is interceding for you on your behalf. But it's not an argument in a courtroom trying to convince the mean, angry father to let the children stay. If you've been saved, you've been saved to the uttermost already. You're already saved to the point where you're not getting additional salvation qualities added to you. You're not getting more and more saved as the days go by. You're getting more and more sanctified, but you're not getting more and more saved. But yet, Christ is not interceding as if he's standing before an angry judge 
He's not litigating like an attorney would defend a guilty client. Because there's no question we're guilty. The argument can't be, but Father, you know they're good. Father, you know they do some good things and they, they, have, they do things with sincerity. The argument falls apart. So the only argument that Christ has is himself and his righteousness. Which instead of leaving us in our state of sin and imputing that sin to us eternally, his righteousness speaks for us. By presenting his own sacrifice, his blood, his own righteousness, that is why God is being, Christ is interceding for us. What does, what does his intercession mean? His intercession means that uh, even in the consolation, when we're in times of distress, even when times when we realize the goodness of God, when we need renewed strength to continue to stand against sin, when we feel as if we're going to fold under the temptations of sin, we're reminded that Christ's presence intercedes even in our perseverance. We are promised that those who are in Christ will persevere until the end. This isn't a maybe we will persevere. Those that are his will persevere, which will lead to that eternal glorification. But does he intercede for the whole world? The question might be, does he have the ability to intercede for the whole world? If he has the ability to save the whole world, then he has the ability to intercede for the whole world, but does he? Is he making intercession? For those who are not God's children. No, he's making intercession for those that are his. Now it's interesting, oftentimes even the atheist, when he gets in trouble or she gets in trouble, will ask a believer to pray for them. I've always found that quite fascinating. Why do you want me to pray to a God you don't believe in? But even a person who's an atheist is brought to a place of affliction and trial and trouble. There seems to be this inclination that I need something. I need someone. I need someone who has the ability to remove whatever it is I need removed. But yet we see that those he intercedes for, and even Christ's great high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus' own words were this, I don't pray for the whole world. But he does say, I pray for those that are mine. Back in Hebrews chapter number two, this has been quite a while ago. Just a reminder again to put us in remembrance. Hebrews 2 verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. That word secure is simply the word help. He's able to help. Able to save to the uttermost, able to save, he is the one and only mediator. I want to briefly look at these next couple of verses. 
Hebrews 7, verse 26. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. In these concluding verses, again, we're reminded of the theme, the superiority of Christ's priesthood to the Levitical priesthood. Verse 27 shows us that there were other priests. There were other priests who acted on behalf of others. But they were merely mortal. They were merely human. Therefore, ultimately, they died. But Christ, because He's eternal, has an unchangeable priesthood. Even the Levitical priests could not fully put away sin because even their priesthood was only representative. But He's able to save to the uttermost. Every year... Every year, sins had to be atoned for. But for Christ, it says this high priest which became us, he who knew no sin became like us, yet without sin, holy, harmless, undefiled. He's separate. He's different. Christ is suitable. The holiness speaks of a pureness. It speaks of a pureness. It speaks of something that is beyond what is, it's, it's, it's what's necessary. Christ, as the high priest, is suited for our need. Holy, blameless, and unstained by sin. Called one with us, yet separate and exalted high above. He only made one sacrifice. One time. This he did once. The writer in Hebrews 9, verse 24, tells us about this. Again, these are, not, these are not new verses, but it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." He only made one sacrifice. That ceremonial law that was made mention to and the ceremonial law in which the writer of Hebrews was speaking of, yes, men were made high priests, but they still had sin in and of themselves. Yes, they had the office of high priest, but God Himself with an eternal oath, we talked about oaths last week, made the Lord Jesus Christ, His beloved Son, to be our great high priest who is consecrated and set apart eternally. Christ has no need to offer any sacrifices for His own sin. And because of that, we see that ability. Christ always succeeds. He does this work of saving to the uttermost with not only the ability, but He does it willingly. He does it freely. All that proves him able to save. Isn't it interesting that the ability to save and the obtain of salvation came by his death? 
In order to live, he had to die. But in order to satisfy the demands, he also had to live. He rose again the third day and he died and he is never going to die again. He arose. Had he not arose, we could not claim salvation to the uttermost. You realize every other religion in the world, no matter what it is, at the center of the heart of it is a dead God. Christ is the only living God. Man puts its hope in something or someone that has no ability to save, yet Christ is able to save. The effects which you and I constantly enjoy. We enjoy being able to say we're saved. Let me finish with what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And I hope this will help us as we think about this today. Now, when he uses the word our conversation, Paul is writing to believers. He's not writing to the world in general. But I want you to notice his use of words. He says, our conversation is in heaven. Present tense. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Our conversation, our conduct, our dwelling, if you will, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The very hope of the believer today is the arrival and the coming of Jesus Christ. That's my hope. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for him to come back again and make an atonement for sin again. I'm looking for him to come back and claim his bride. And to be able to say with certainty, I know that he has saved me. I know that I belong to him. Not based upon what my ability was, but on his ability and his willingness to save. He is able. Today, you could be seated here and you can say, I've done way too many things in my life. I've done way too many things that I, he just would not have the ability to save me. The command is exactly the same. To repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you don't know what I've done. I don't have to know what you've done. You don't know everything I've done. I don't want you to know every thought I've had. I don't want you to know where I can still sin and wonder. How can a believer still sin like that? I, like you, would be embarrassed if my life was put on display on a screen behind me. I'd be embarrassed for you to see it. You say, that's pretty transparent. That's just truth. And there's not a one of us in here that wants our life put on display. But I will display my Lord and I will say He's able to even save a wretch like me. Who in spite of His love and in spite of His goodness, I still choose to sin and yet He still saved me.
and still grants me the gift of repentance and continually brings me back unto himself. What a mighty God. Before we enter into the Lord's Supper, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, mere words do not seem to be enough to express our gratitude and our thanksgiving for our salvation today. The Lord, we realize that you have not given us the responsibility to save, but you've given us the commission and the command to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And to do that without prejudice and without discrimination and to simply proclaim the gospel to all that will hear. And Father, I certainly pray today that whether we're called ministers or whether we're, we're called uh, some other title, that we would all see our responsibility and our privilege to be able to speak the truth of salvation. We are thankful for the ability of our Savior to save to the uttermost. Thank you for this study and this exposition of Hebrews, which has just so humbled us and brought us into a place of remembrance. Father, we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.